What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold-cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety nine each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess. And today on the show, we've got Rachel Hofsetter. She's a best-selling author and founder of businesses Guesterly and PR School. Get people invested in the process. And that means maybe they edit your book. Maybe they vote on your logo. Maybe they say, hey, here's my advice. Let me get on the phone for you for half an hour, especially in the beginning stages. Because we did that with the book, which also meant by the time the book came out and all those people who helped, they had their name and the acknowledgement. They were also some of the biggest sharers because they felt like they owned this book. They helped edit this book. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today on the show, we've got Rachel Hofsetter. She's a best-selling author and founder of businesses Guesterly and PR School. Rachel, thanks for coming on the show. This is fun, Jess. Glad to be here. We left out some of your illustrious career, including uh, with Oprah's organization and, and some of the other fun things you've done. Um, but do you want to start off here? We'll, we'll start with some of your highlights, and then uh, we'll go back into how you got there. Sure. So telling a little bit of the story of where I've been from, that type of thing? Yeah. All right. Well, I started out in food. I was a food editor at Oprah Magazine for years, among other publications, and it was the best job in the world. That's the easiest way to say it. I was paid to eat and drink delicious things all over the world and tell stories about it and tell stories about the people who were creating these delicious things. And so one of the types of stories I particularly like to tell was that of the entrepreneurs and the makers and the creators and the artisans. And one article I wrote in particular, which I titled Cooking Up a Business, just profiled five entrepreneurs and how they basically started at their kitchen table. And then with an idea, maybe it was chocolate chip cookies or spaghetti sauce or cheese, things like that. And then grown that idea into a multi-million dollar business. And we just said, hey, how'd you do it? What was the hard part? What do you wish you had known? It's like five questions for each entrepreneur. And what was so cool to me, Jess, is that I wrote and edited lots of these stories every month. I pretty much knew what a response would be to a certain story. As in, if it was Oprah's favorite sandwich recipe, people would love it. If it was almost anything else, people would be like, bravo, nice job, hooray. 
people loved this story. I think we were all a little bit shocked at that. Like, wow, how did this story blow up? And so said, hey, this is a moment. This was kind of middle of the recession of the moment. Everybody's getting laid off, you know, working fewer hours. And one of the things that seems like makes a lot of sense then is what if I start my own side business, making my famous chocolate chip cookies? What does that look like? And so I took that idea, sold it to Penguin as a book deal and cooking up a business, which I'll show you for fun because it's here, cooking up a business. You got to show us the Polish one too. Yes, I pulled the Polish version for fun, right? <laughs> how does it say? Like, Ugato Swaj Business. I just What's love how you mean? say business in Polish, right? It's a very pretty book. I've tried to read it. I'm not very good at my Polish, I have to say. <laughs> so the book came out, though, and when I started writing it, I was 100% a food person. You know, I wrote, but I was a food person. And by the time I finished the book, I was obsessed with entrepreneurship. And I think I had this idea of like, as I talked to all these entrepreneurs and dug deep into their stories and how they did it, you start to think like, oh, I could do that. I could do that. And of course, since we are talking trials and tribulations here, turned out it wasn't quite that easy. (laughs) Even when you're you're listening from your own cozy armchair, I like to call my book Armchair Entrepreneurship, it's not nearly as easy as you think at the end. Kind of like it's always, you know, harder to actually travel than to read the travel stories. And so, but had this itch, had this idea, and the idea was really quite simple. When my husband and I got married, we made this little lookbook. I'll show you an example here. A little lookbook, just featuring fun stuff about everybody at our event. So it had their pictures and their names and a few fun facts about them. And it was meant to connect everybody because I had grown up in Ohio. My husband had grown up in Idaho. We were living in New York. And so everybody was coming in from all over the world for this one weekend. We wanted them to be friends with each other because at the end of the day, you're going to have more fun if you have your friends there. And it was just like this fun thing we did. Like, hey, this is going to be our cool wedding thing. Isn't this awesome? Except our friends started asking for it. Like, hey, could you do this for our wedding? And so we did it on weekends as hobbies. It was total arts and crafts. We were making the whole thing up. We were doing it in Microsoft Word. They did not look pretty, but the heart was there. The idea was there. And so eventually we started getting requests from people that we didn't know. And at first somebody called, they were like, hey, I saw this at Zach's wedding. How do I buy it? We were like, oh, we don't sell. How much do you want to pay for that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so we threw up a landing page to justify paying you know, asking to be paid for doing this. And I was just, you know, I think one of my moments is when a marketing director at Procter & Gamble called. was like, hey, we heard about this. We want to do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to be multimillionaires. We've just figured out this business. Uh, What didn't happen quite as smoothly as that. Uh, But I'll get more into that story later. So that's where Gestually came from. And then to bring us to the final fun part of this, turned out I was really good at getting PR for the book, for Guesterly, and it wasn't so much who I knew, even though as an editor for years, I did know lots and lots of editors, but it was that I could think like an editor. And I basically reverse engineered what had worked on me when I was getting the word out about all these other brands for people. And I said, oh, you know, give good story. Give it like it's my friend. Be super appreciative with whatever I get and put that into practice and it worked. And so what I started then is something called PR school Uh, with my friend, Angela Gia Kim. We started a PR school, which is an online school and it's taught by editors, 
directly for entrepreneurs, makers, creators, authors. How do you get the word out? And so that was one of those things he started on a whim and took off and has had so many great results for hundreds of entrepreneurs, including lots of Today Show appearances. I think every major magazine at this point, every major newspaper. And we just have the results keep coming in because at the end of the day, if entrepreneurs and creatives give good stories, that's win-win for editors. And that's what we're trying to facilitate is editors need good stories just as entrepreneurs want to be featured. And so we just help entrepreneurs give the stories that editors want. So great. And for anybody who's watching this on YouTube or somewhere else on the internet, if you come to Rachel's page on ideationcollective.com, we've got the sample that she just showed us. We've got links to, to everything that Rachel's talking about. Um, so come check that out. So let's, let's dive into that story a little bit. First thought is, how does somebody get hired at Oprah? What, what's, a, what's any tips? You know, I, bet, I think that's a dream job for, for some folks. Um, or, or just, you know, a publication of yeah. that profile. Any, any thoughts for not blending in with all the other applicants? So I have two strategies here. And the first is start where you are. Um, and the second is something we call chisel. Let me tell you about chisel. So if you've ever been to New York City and been in a taxi cab, a lot of times you'll be in traffic that is just chock-a-block. Nobody's moving. All the lanes are completely filled. And your taxi driver will start to move into the next lane a little bit. And you're like, no way is he getting over in the next lane. Like, we are screwed. We're not getting over there because we're jam-packed right here. Except the amazing thing happens is the taxi driver chisels and he chisels a little more and he puts one tire and all of a sudden, you know, the next car is like, well, I'm going to just go past. I'm not going to run over you. But then the car after that's like, well, I don't want to hit this guy. So I'm going to move over a little bit. And it's amazing. Takes a little time, but in a minute, all of a sudden your taxi is in the next lane. And I think that strategy of chiseling, I do think other people in New York call it chiseling. I don't think I'm the only one that's used (laughs) that phrase. Uh, But that's basically what I did with my career is you start in one place and it looks impossible to get over in the next lane, but you just go over little by little, inch by inch by inch. And it is surprising. The next thing you know, you're in the other lane. And so I was supposed to be a lawyer. That's 100% what I was supposed to do, where I thought I was going. And instead said, hey, I'm obsessed with magazines. I love stories. I love magazines. I study these for fun. You know, I could tell you which column is in which magazine every month. And so decided to leave college. I was going to college in Ohio. Said, hey, how do you get a job in magazines? And it turns out what you do is you intern. And that's still how it works, by the way. You, you intern. And got an internship at a magazine called Cosmo Girl. And before then, I like thought, oh, I'll just try it out for six months, do it my senior year, finish up my classes at night at NYU, see how it goes. Didn't really have that high of expectations, to be honest, because this was a little crazy. It seemed like real people didn't work in magazines. Real people were lawyers or doctors or whatever. You know, They worked at magazines in Devil Wears Prada. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Ended up getting hired at Cosmo Girl to be the assistant to an editor-in-chief which is another fun thing. If you ever get a chance to be the assistant to somebody very high up, whether that's an editor-in-chief, a CEO, you know, the head of your division, it can feel a little bit less glamorous in the beginning than like being your own associate person over here. But assisting someone high up is one of the best things I ever did because you get to see so much so fast and be, you know, know so much behind the scenes. You kind of get the clear-eyed view of how an organization works, how an industry works. And so I got to spend an amazing amount of time just learning straight from the top, which means that 
when I eventually did go to Oprah, I understood how the whole magazine system worked, where the power plays were, what was kind of the politics beside things were happening. It wasn't as straightforward as here you are at level two, you know, which I was. I was basically one step up from the bottom when I first went there. But it was like, oh, I knew it was happening in the behind the scenes type of thing a lot more. So always take that. I think there's a little bit of like, oh, I don't want to be an assistant. Assistants rock. Yeah. So, but I had a great time at Cosmo Girl. And one of the best things that I heard there is get an area of expertise. You know, everybody could be a generalist. You have to be great at writing, great at editing, but it helps if you have something you're really passionate about. So I had two things I was passionate about, the environment and food. And really my food was kind of wrapped up in the environmental stuff. And I said, great, I'm going to go into food. And it was as simple as that, right? I had very little experience. I had done my thesis research on banana agriculture. You know, that was basically it. And went to Oprah and said, hey, I want to be in food. Oprah Magazine, not Oprah herself at that point. And was hired on, again, as kind of like a second from the bottom position, not even officially in food at all. And when I got there, did my job that I was supposed to do, and then started pitching the food editors. Be like, here's something I found cool. Here's another thing I found cool. Eventually, they'd let me write a few little pieces. Um, And then one time, I think this is one of my favorite things, I just wrote a story. I knew one of the food editors had to write this story. It was a nutrition story coming up. And, you know, I thought I really wanted, been there a while working with her. I really want to write it, but there was no way she was going to assign it to me. You know, I was way too junior to write this story. So I just wrote it. And I said, by the way, here's the story. And you know what? She didn't run it straight, but she took a lot from it. And she put my name in the byline. And that was really the beginning because once I did it, I think I could have asked for years to write the story, but sometimes just show up and do it because that was a big tipping point for me Mm. is she started giving me stuff to write. And, you know, a while before I got my big fancy pieces to write, but I started doing it and, you know, I started doing the food almost full time and then one food editor left and they didn't replace her. And then another food editor left and, by then I was running the food. And so what really happened for me was I just started doing it and people left and more people left and they just didn't replace them. And so by the time I was <laughs> 25, I was a food editor at Oprah and got to run with it as much as I wanted, lived in my own little bubble and had a ton of fun doing it. So that's kind of how you get the job is you chisel, you show up, you intern in the beginning And then you just start doing it. And like many things, I was not a great writer. I mean, I was an okay writer. I wasn't horrible. But you get trained doing it. If you just keep showing up and asking for the work and then doing it and showing up again and again and not getting defensive. And believe me, I went from being a pretty mediocre writer to being like, okay, I am an Oprah writer now. So you just do it over and over again. Uh, I love that story about tenacity, you know, um, I'm, I'm really happy you brought up some of the principles there, you know, this idea of mentorship and being able to see it in action, it, it almost sounds like the apprenticeship type model, you know, what an advantage, what an advantage later on, you know, I think so many of us have such a fear of the unknown and sure probably doesn't have the huge salary along the way, but the preparation for the long run of being able to not know about those situations, but actually know those situations. What an advantage for you. I loved it. And I think I've had, I've had amazing mentors throughout my life. And now that I mentor a lot of people and I've had 
many assistants who I've groomed and have gone on to amazing, amazing things. I love to look back at where all my former assistants are now. But it's if you are positive and excited and can actually take things in and learn and show that you're learning from them, the person who's mentoring loves that. It's one of my favorite feelings. And because also, you know, nobody ever knows who they're going to be working for down the road. And it goes all different directions, up and down. So it's like, be enthusiastic up, be enthusiastic down, because five years later, you could be working for that person too. Yeah. Um, any advice for, for getting mentors of like the pitch? Somebody, somebody wants mm. to get a mentor? I, I, have, I have some ideas of my own, but I want to hear yours. I'll say honestly, I think it's much more organic in many situations. And there's mentors that are higher than you. There's mentors that are kind of peer mentors. I think in your organization, the first thing is to make your boss your mentor. And because a lot of times it's as simple as that or your boss's friend or the person who you want to be your boss. And it's just going to them, letting them know you're super interested. But I don't think you have to say, will you be my mentor? My philosophy is always give before you take. So how can you help? And of course, by you helping them, they're going to have to put a lot of energy back into you. Like I will be honest, the first three months with any assistant, I'm giving way, way more than I'm getting. But so as an assistant, though, you have to be like, I want to help. How can I help? And maybe that means like in my world as a food editor that you are organizing the food closet. But if you can organize that closet where we put all the samples, it's called the food closet. It's amazing. But if you can organize that really well and be helpful in that way, then sure, you have a story idea. I'll sit down and say, here's what's good. Here's what doesn't work. Here's how I'll like play with it a bit more. So I think a lot of ways it's just showing up. And as that relationship develops, asking questions. Like the more questions you ask and the more you say, I want to learn about this. I am here to learn. I want to know what do you think? Come to them for advice on things. I really think it forms very naturally. That being said, one thing I do want to add is put energy into keeping those relationships because one of the things I'm proud of and happy about is I've kept my mentors as I've moved jobs and moved industries. And that is about being proactive. It doesn't have to be reaching out all the time, but it is you know, once or twice a year, at least having that warm relationship, because it's not losing them the second you walk out of the door, or even the second you switch industries. They're there in different ways. That's great. Um, what are your thoughts on mentors? You know, coming from more of an entrepreneurial background, mm-hmm. for me, it's been more like, try to find somebody who's achieved what I wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, get a call into them or get a connection and give them a chance to feel important. You know, like most of them, their kids just want their money or their friends just want their money. Uh, They don't really want to learn what it took to pay the price to get where they're at. So Mm -hmm. I would do things like call and say, hey, if I bought a plane ticket to your city, would you let me buy you dinner? Oh, I like that. Uh, I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for a job. I just think I want to be like you. And so I was going to see if I could get some advice for what you'd do if you were me. I love that. That's and a good one. These people, you know, they've read so many books and they've paid such a price. I have a really high batting average on them saying yes. As long as yeah. you're flexible on dates, when they say, mm-hmm. oh, when were you thinking? And you respond with, oh, I'm flexible. What works for you? Typically, they're a little bit flattered. And to be honest, like they've paid such a price to learn and really nobody wants to listen. So it, yeah. it's kind of a fun experience for them to have somebody who actually cares what they're saying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just bought cheap JetBlue tickets somewhere and it, uh, it's worked out well. I think about this story of tenacity and showing up. Do you have any 
tricks or tips that like, are, are there like a hero story that you're emulating? Like when you don't feel like going that extra mile, how do you get yourself to go the extra mile? Actually, I'll tell you what I do now because it's one of my favorite trips and tricks. And let me show this up. So this is my daily action planner, which is a pretty big planner. But each day it has something that I love. And it has a column called frogs and a column called ships. And Angela Gia Kim came up with this. So I just take it and run with it. But the concept is frogs. Each day you eat three frogs. And the idea is that if you know you have to eat a frog, which sounds really weird and gross, for example, you're kind of going to like put it off all day. Why do you want to eat the frog? But if you just do it, it's horrible and it's over. And I find that I often have that with emails, for example, right? Like that person I have to email or that thing I have to reply to. And it sits in your inbox and sits in your inbox. And you're going to do it yesterday and the day before. But every day it's like at least eat one frog, that thing you don't want to do. But the part about putting stuff out there is my favorite. And that's the idea of ships. And so Every day I challenge myself to send out three ships. And I'll be honest, a lot of days I only get one. But a ship is something new, so it's not responding to something that's already kind of in your world. It's putting something new out there. So, for example, a ship would be reaching out to one of these possible mentors. Or it would be sending out a possible story to an outlet for press consideration. Or it would be reaching out to a potential partner. Or in the case about the Oprah story, it would be writing a story and just putting it out there and saying, here, what do you think about this? And I love that idea because so easy to get to get up to that, blah, blah, blah. so easy to get caught up into what you're supposed to do. Like, here's the five things I have to respond to because they're pressing, but it's all the inbound, right? Instead, it's pushing things outbound. And the idea of the ship, where that really comes from is that in the olden days, you know, these ships would go out for trade missions and you would have no idea if it would come back. But if it came back, it'd be filled with gold. And so, but to get the chance of the ship coming back with gold, you had to actually send it out first. And so it's trying to send out ships. And my personal, if I send out a ship a day, that's my thing. Even at the end of the day, I'm like, did I send out a ship? Something new, something that could kick the ball down a court. And that's really how you keep putting things out there in the world. And you know what? Maybe like one in five turn into something awesome. But that's still like one new thing a week. So that's amazing. Yeah, it really adds up over time, huh? Yeah. Okay, so how much is the planner? We'll put a link here on the site for people that want to buy that. How much are oh, those, yeah. you know? How much is it? Yeah. Or what? Yeah. How much do those planners uh, I think cost? I think it starts at $15. Okay. Something like that. We'll put a link know. up. We'll put a link up. I actually <laughs> really like that idea. So you're working at Oprah. You, you get this entrepreneurial bug. Can you tell us about from entrepreneurial bug and uh, interviewing people to best-selling author? What was that like? What's, yeah. What's the story there? So, well, I'll tell you about how the book came about, which was, again, a story of just doing it. I sold the book. I had eight months to write it. Was still working. Can we back up? Can we back up? Tell us about, tell us about selling the book. What does selling the book look like? Okay. So here's what selling a book looks like. And this is the very traditional way. And there are lots of like fresher ways to hack it at this point, but this is kind of how traditional book selling works, which is I sat down one weekend and I wrote a proposal. Um, so for nonfiction books, you don't write the book first for fiction. You do write the whole book first. But nonfiction, you're basically like, here's the idea. Here's why I think people want to know about it. What are the market comps? Kind of like raising money for investment in some ways on an early idea. What does the market look like? What are books that are kind of in this space? And you actually want that. Just like when you're starting a company, it's actually better if there's something out there in the general space, which says like people want this in some way. Even though your book or your entrepreneurial idea is a little bit different, different take, different way of approaching it, 
you want to be like, hey, people are mildly interested in this topic. And you have that, you have a sample chapter, um, you kind of say like, here's how cool I am, here's how I'm going to be able to get the word out about the book, here's my background. Basically, why me? Which is, again, very similar to raising money. Why are you the best person to do this company? And then you sign with an agent. Um, I'll be honest, because of the industry I was in, I worked with agents a lot because I would try to get their writers to write for me at Oprah. And so we had a lot of good relationships. But how it actually worked out is I was talking to an agent. I was trying to get one of her writers to do a story for me on something. And she said, hey, do you write? And I was like, wow, yes, of course I write. But in my head, I'm like, wow, I just wrote a book proposal and kind of left it on my hard drive and was thinking, what do I do next with it? So we went in, met with people, and they signed to take on my book the next day. So I got very lucky on that part of querying agents and things like that. I will be honest there. Once I had an agent who was amazing, best agent in the world, they help you shape it a lot more. And they look a lot more at comps and where is this going to fit into the market, things like that. And then they take it out and they go to different editors. So agents have amazing relationships with editors, you know, easily 100 to 200 editors. They know they say, here's the first three we're going to go to on day one. You go out to three on the next day. You go out to three more, three more, three more. And it kind of cycles through, you know, editors know they have to look quickly at this, especially if it's from a good agent that they trust and admire. And so I think by day three, we had a number of bites in and. You kind of circle them all around. Then you talk to all these editors. And it's like, what's their vision for your book versus what's your vision for your book? And is their vision, you know, everything from what price do they want to sell it at? Because that is a big deal. Is it hardcover, softcover, full color, not full color? Do they want to do it just as you've imagined it? Or do they want to have a different take on it? And in the end, you basically say, you know, a couple people in our case, we kind of all aligned on what we want it to do. And then you pick the editor you want to work with and the best offer price. And so that's what we got to do was talk to a lot of people and in the end choose which one we wanted the most. So that's kind of how it works. And then you come up with how long do you have? You sign a ton of contracts. Again, having an agent makes this whole thing much, much easier. And all of a sudden you have a book deal and it goes live. You know, when you're telling that story, I, I think... It's pretty easy for those of us who, who are not working in a publication with those relationships to sit back and say, well, what good does that do me? I don't have those relationships. But I, yeah. I mean, it also made me think of um, Aristotle Onassis, the, the man that Jackie Kennedy married. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was the Warren Buffett of his day. He was the richest man in the world at the time. And he talked about how he didn't really know how to do a lot of technical things. And he said if he lost yeah. all his wealth, what he would do. Was he go ditch, dig ditches until he had $5? I'm misquoting here, but to go <laughs> eat soup where the wealthy people eat soup so he could be in the right space. I and love that. I just think like your story there about um, intentionally, you know, being in the mix with the right kind of people and mm-hmm. maybe not letting ourselves off the hook of why I could never do that. But instead asking, how can I, how can I be in the mix? How can I be in the environment where those type of random interactions have a higher probability. And I'll also add, and not to sound woo-woo here, but it's also about just getting started because keep in mind, I wrote that book proposal. I sat, I carved out a weekend after that story. I wrote it, Oprah took off and I wrote the proposal. And, you know, a week later, the agent asked that question, but I will tell you, I'd been working with agents for at least five years that nobody had ever, ever 
ever asked anything like that before. It was just never come up in any sort of context. And so it was like, wow, maybe I just manifested that. But you can't manifest things until you start putting them out there. And I think if I just been like, oh, I might want to write a book, part of the reason they probably signed me is because I showed up with a book proposal. Like, hey, by the way, I have this. And I couldn't have done that normally. And so just get started. And when I, I went all around the country on book tour, and I heard two things over and over and over again. One, I've always wanted to start a business. And two, I've always wanted to write a book. And I have the exact same answer for both of them. Take one step tomorrow. Start this weekend. Carve out your Saturday and just get started. And I will tell you, Jess, what 90% of people say is like, oh, but I have something planned for Saturday. Or, oh, I'm busy right now. But, you know, in the spring or in the summer when my kids are off school. Over and over. And I want to be like, you just have to start. At the end of the day, if I said any one thing, you just have to start. So it's part of that, too. It's being with the right people. I love that story. But it's also just starting because it's so much easier once you've started and have something to share to go put yourself with the right people. Yeah, it's like uh, I, I, you know, I think I've had some common experience and it's kind of this idea of you can't steer a parked car, right? (laughs) People are really worried that the car is pointed the wrong direction and they're like really trying to get their life in order and get it all worked out before they before they turn the ignition on when really like. If you just start rolling the wrong way, at least you'd be in motion so you could get turned around. Like, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly it. You know that. And just start this weekend. It's as easy as saying Saturday. Saturday, I'm doing it. That's great advice. Okay. Sorry for the interruption. Okay. So you sell the book, you get the editors, you get the deal, but you still had a full time job, right? Still had a full time job. And. I want to be honest here. If you make the plan, it actually wasn't that hard. So every morning I wrote from 5 to 7 a.m. was as simple as that. And then had 10 weekends that I carved out. I had 10 chapters in my book. And so really finished each chapter on a weekend. Would carve those out and say Saturday and Sunday, 9 to 5. This is what I'm doing. And would get most of it written during the week. Done. Which is one of those things which now like sounds a little crazy, although now that I'm an entrepreneur, the amount of hours I worked then don't really seem like very much. But it's as simple as that. It was making the plan for it and then just working the plan. Uh, I think one of the cool things I did with the book, though, was actually once I had all the chapters ready, I sent them out to about 50 friends. And I said, hey, here's my book. Would love to have you edit a chapter. I gave, you know, gave them each one that kind of maybe meant something to them. And got all their feedback in and re-edited it all before I ever sent it to my editor. Hmm. And it meant that, A, once it got to my editor, it just like flew through, which was nice. But it was great to get so many different opinions and really start to see what people were paying attention to. But it also brought up a ton of like little red flags that, let's say you're reading a book and something just feels not quite right. And you're like, start questioning it, right? You lose interest in the story because you're like, well, where did they get that $10,000 from? Uh, For example, something that came up so many times in questions from my friends was one of the companies I featured, they started as college students and really grew this huge business by starting in their college kitchen. And people were like over and over, oh my gosh, their parents must be really rich. Like I could never do that. Where'd they get the money from? Where'd they get the money from? And it was so funny because I could go to them, get the detail. You know, they took the $5,000 they earned doing summer jobs. And that was what they started with. The only thing they started with. But by like adding that one little detail in, you made the story so much better because people stopped pushing against it. I think that's one of the big reasons to have people edit what you do in general is, yes, the grammar matters and things like that. 
but also what kind of question starts blocking them because a blocked question will stop somebody paying attention to you. I'm not surprised that's your advice. I do feel like you're like a, a great evangelist for entrepreneurs and innovators to be testing things. So it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like I'm hearing it. test the book. Yes. Test the book. Although let me tell you one more cool thing about this. And this is kind of advice for a book, but also for starting a business, which is get people invested in the process. And that means maybe they edit your book. Maybe they vote on your logo. Maybe they say, hey, here's my advice. Let me get on the phone for you for half an hour, especially in the beginning stages, because we did that with the book, which also meant by the time the book came out and all those people who helped, they had their name and the acknowledgments, but they were also some of the biggest sharers because they felt like they owned this book. They helped edit this book. They shared it. They bought it. I think one friend who edited a chapter bought like 50 copies and gave them to everybody. And she's like, I edited chapter eight. I edited chapter eight. <laughs> and you're like, yes, awesome. But exact same thing when we came out with Guesterly. We actually just involved our personal Facebook groups and like my Twitter followers and stuff. And we said all the time, vote on this. What do you think of this? Which color? So by the time we actually launched, people were like, oh, I'm part of Guesterly. Like I made this happen. And ownership. And it's a big thing. And anything you're doing is bring people along, make them feel ownership and they become your biggest evangelists. I love it. Before we move on in the book, you know, we obviously have other authors on the show. We know that some of our viewers are in the middle of writing books or in the middle of writing their next book with the level of a success you got any tips that you would give for people to, you know, the difference between a good, a good book sales strategy versus a one that reaches the level that yours got to? I think the best thing you can do is make it about way more than the book itself. And to put like words around that and what does that actually mean is here's my book it features in the end, I think 35 awesome entrepreneurs. I could have just gone places, read the book. We did do a ton of PR, which was huge. But what really worked for us was going to all the cities that these entrepreneurs were in. And having these amazing panel events where they'd bring their food, other local entrepreneurs would bring their food. And we talked business, we talked food, we made it really interactive. And of course, at the end, you got to eat and drink. And so who doesn't like that? Like, I remember one night in Denver, we had hundreds and hundreds of people come out for the one we did there. And the Denver Broncos were playing that night. And so all of a sudden, it was like, oh my gosh, there's nobody going to come, nobody going to come at all. But it turns out, you know what? People like food just as much as they like watching the Denver Broncos. And so it's making it bigger than just your book. And we were really able to tie on to these trends of food, wanting to know more about your food and the people who make it, you know, starting a business in your kitchen, of course, but really tying it into larger themes. So I think the more you can do that and the more you can do that with partnerships. So, for example, in New York, uh, we had this really big party at a co-working space which brought in all of their people. And again, we'd bring in panelists of big companies, even when they weren't in the book, um, have them come in, they share with their people inside business of food. So the more experts and other people you can bring on, partners, even you know, Chipotle sponsored part of it and did a lot of our food in places. Again, now they're invested in making it do well. So I think it's just more thinking like a business, what other partners can you bring in than just saying like, here's my book, it's amazing always partners at this point. It's that's the easiest way to work smarter, not harder, bring in partners. Well, and if I'm reading between the lines, it sounds like you were approaching those partners instead of leading what's in it for Rachel, like what's in it for you. We'd love to profile you. 
Exactly. It's like, here's this great opportunity to be profiled, to share what you're doing, to reach a bigger audience, to be positioned as an expert, to get in front of people. It's always about what was the opportunity for them. And like, even with partnering with the co-working place, right? It's like, we're going to bring this awesome event, cool people, cool food. Aren't you so lucky we're reaching out to you? Which in the end is true. Like you have to kind of psych yourself into that mindset a bit and be like, okay, I'm, I'm offering them an opportunity. I'm not asking for something offering, not asking. Love it. Uh, well, we've talked a bit about Guestrily already, but, um, you know, for those who maybe are trying to get their business to the next level, can you talk mm-hmm. about some specifics from hobby business, business that has a few dollars to legit business that's feeding the family, like, you know, real business. Can you talk about that transition? Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> yes. I think it's two things. It's, finding the right product. And I'll be really honest. We had the idea, the concept from day one, like this lookbook featuring everybody. It connects people at events and in groups. And what we started out with was this beautiful high-end custom designed product. It was not software, even though we kind of pretended we had software, but there was no software. It was all like hand done on the back end. Uh, And they were beautiful. And I will say people love them. And our price point was very high. It was five to $10,000 each one except here's the dirty secret. We were paying just cost, like pure cost for each one, you know, at least 15,000. So we were losing $5,000 per job. And it doesn't take you very long to be like, this is a horrible business model, uh, which was crazy because we were making a ton of revenue and it felt like, wow, okay, something is happening here. But I think it's going with your gut on a few things. And we've had that happen a few times throughout the evolution. The first was saying, this is not working. And we stopped taking orders, which was very scary when you have big companies saying, you know, I want to buy this for $10,000. I want to buy this for $20,000. And for a while, we kept trying to make the software to automate the whole thing. It was very hard to do when we were also processing all of these very expensive, essentially custom magazines. And so I remember it was in October. We said no new jobs and said that for a while, finished all the jobs in the queue and then basically closed down for a while to make the software. And here's the thing. We made the software that we personally would have wanted because for our wedding, we had written the bios about everybody. And when we talked to people, that's what they said they wanted to write, you know, their own bios, make it a surprise. You show up at the wedding, you get something like this. You had no idea it was coming. It's all written about you. Like people love that idea. They were obsessed with it. We were getting so much press around that idea, except guess what? It's a lot of work to write the bios of a hundred people. So we came up with this perfect software around that. And again, people loved it. We got so much press. It was amazing. People would come in in droves and start their books. We got, you know, literally connected with over 2% of the wedding market, but it took a lot of time. And so they'd start working on it and then their wedding would get close and they would say, Oh, darn it. I really wanted to finish this, but I just don't have the time. And so it was kind of that thing, gut reaction again. I mean, I was, laying on my carpet crying because I was like, we just put so much time and energy into the wrong product. But this is kind of the story of entrepreneurship. And it's like, once you have that gut reaction, move as quickly as you can to fix it. And so it was kind of like, we knew what we needed. I was there. It almost hits you. And as soon as it hits you, you know, it's like a lightning bolt. You're like, this is what we have to do. And also as the founder of a company, that is your job to say, I know this is going to make everybody on our team uncomfortable. Nobody is happy right now. Everybody is actually kind of crying and upset with us. But you know what? 
the right thing is actually over there. We need to go do the right thing. So we completely rebuilt the software um, and made it so it crowdsources all of the information. And so now while you still could write all yourself, what the vast majority of people do is create a link, put a few questions in it, and everybody coming to the event answers it on their own in two minutes. And so time spent literally went from days to a couple of minutes for the organizer. And for us, that was the product market fit that worked. It was not easy to get there. Um, but once we had it, it also let us go into these new markets, family reunions, corporate events, corporate directories, all those things we've been doing kind of off-label, we can now do perfectly on-label. I think we were live one week and Clear Channel reached out. They were like, where have you been all our life? We've been doing this internally and now we're just doing it nonstop. And so I think it's going until you found that product market fit is one of the big things is you know when it's not working. And that's kind of your internal thing of it looks really pretty. The branding is great. And people were buying it in the old iteration. So it was kind of hard to say, like, it's not that nobody was buying it, but they weren't the people who were so enthusiastic about it weren't completing to purchase. And that was our issue is if you have these hundreds and hundreds of people who love this, but they're not buying in the end, there's still an issue. So it's a very long way of saying is. Get yourself to product market fit um, as fast as you can. It took us a while because we were bootstrapping it, to be really honest. Um, but I think it's that. Um, and so the question was, what does it feel like to go to a business that's actually like doing amazing? Um, I don't know yet. I think we've got it. It's selling. I have yet to actually pull money out of our company. And I think my biggest advice there, too, is let it grow as much as you can. We are now profitable, but we pour every sense of profit back into advertising at this stage. And so it's kind of saying like that too. Also, here's one more thought. Know what you're growing it for. We're not growing this to be a business where we take big paychecks or take big revenue things. We're growing it to sell it and have it go in that way. And so kind of know what you're doing. I would be running this slightly different if I was just taking revenue out of it. Um, that being said, PR school, I am growing for that way. Like PR school is my awesome revenue business. So it's knowing what the end goal is with your business as well, which I think lets you run it in different ways. Well, let's talk about that. Um, so, so talk to us about the invention of PR school. So PR school was one of those things that was so organic and so natural. And I think my lesson there is when somebody keeps, you know, when people keep asking for something, give it to them. And so kind of in New York, I lived in New York for a very long time. Now we're in Salt Lake, but lived in New York for a very long time. And in this, you know, became part of the big circle of entrepreneurs and small business owners and investors. And word started to get out that, hey, like Rachel's getting a lot of PR over there. How is she doing that? And, you know, can we meet for coffee? Can I hear what you think? Can, can my friend and my friend meet you for coffee? So I started doing a lot of that. And also started to like have fun talking about other people's things because I could go in in one minute and say, okay, rip up that press release. That's not interesting. Your story's right here. This is your story right here. Run with that. And they'd be like, oh, never thought of that. You mean I really have to rip up my press release? And I'm like, yes, just run with that one story. You're going to be great. And was talking to my friend, Angela Gia Kim, and we were just brainstorming PR ideas, actually. Well, story ideas for some of our mutual friends. And we were like, oh, okay, she should do this and pitch it here. And that would be so awesome. Um, it's kind of funny that our form of gossiping was like, what should her story idea be? But that's what we were doing, as simple as that. And we said, what if we 
turn this into something. And it was as simple as that. Angela had run a class called Manifest Method, which is all about getting your business idea out of your head and into the world. And we're like, what if we just make it how to get the word out about your idea once it's out there in the world? And I think the really cool lesson from this is that we knew we had the awesome content because we had lived it. I had lived it on the magazine side. And then also Angela and I had both you know, gotten, again, the stat over 100 press hits in a year each. And so we both lived it. Um, and it was one of those things where we said, great, we know our content can be awesome. You know, we have enough kind of software around it. Let's focus on two things. First, selling this course. So we literally put up a pretty easy landing page. We didn't spend more than a day or two on it. And we started selling it. And we sold, I think, 100 seats that first time. And then we came with the content. And we made amazing, amazing content. And again, we didn't so much worry about the pretty tech around it. It was like, we'll record these videos live. It's a webinar. You'll get them in your inbox. There's not, there actually is still nothing really fancy around it, but the content was so good that people were obsessed with it. And I think that's my thing, especially if you're making any sorts of information product is just make sure your content's amazing because PR school is full of super fans at this point, which is partially why when we ran it again, we sold it so easily because we had amazing content that got people amazing, amazing results. Like I love seeing the stories come in every day and do that. And like, honestly, you can go buy a hundred other courses that look prettier and have cool little login portals and things like that. But just focus on the information. And again, don't build out big things. This is my theme. You're right, Jess. Uh, don't build out big things before people want it. Just like put out the general idea. Do they buy it? Okay. Then you can build out more. So that was a tangent. I don't even know what you're talking about. That's how PR school started. <laughs> no, I love it though. I am, um, you know, this idea of like, sell, design, build, you know, mm -hmm. there's, I, I worked, uh, when I was on the mergers and acquisitions team for Citigroup, you know, at the time, the division I was part of, you know, it was the largest M and a, you know, top M and a firm in the world back in those years, uh, for mid market. And when I found out that the division I worked for had been an acquired company of somebody else and that this, the, like the way the business started was that the CEO of that business was talking to somebody about selling his company and uh, the guy said, oh, you have a company? And he's like giving the buying signs. What's it called? And the guy starts looking around the room, sees a chocolate bar and takes the name off of the chocolate bar and says, oh, this is, yeah, my company's this. And, and literally it was that for like 26 years till he sold it to Citigroup. And this concept of sell, design, build, I don't think, you know, for those of us who we went through our 12 years of school and then maybe university afterwards and yeah. we got taught to paint by numbers and to do everything in order. Uh, I, I love hearing your story about that because what you're talking about is the way things are not done at school, but it is the way things are done in the yes. real world so often, right? Exactly that is there's so many right ways to do it. And even with things like PR, right? Like I've had assistants now who work for us who get their traditional PR learnings in school. And then they come to me and they're like, oh, this is how you do it. Because also to stay on fresh of the game, you can't keep doing it how it's been taught because people get used to that and they don't respond as much. And so it's kind of like constantly finding new ways. I mean, for an example, back in the beginning days of the internet, we all clicked on banner ads. We thought like, oh, let me click on that banner ad. And now banner ads has zero click through whatsoever. Like nobody clicks on banner ads. And so it's kind of one of those things where you have to keep innovating. And if you're doing what was just taught in school, you've already lost the first mover advantage. That's great. Well, um, 
obviously we're going to have links here for people who want to sign up for PR school, but can you, can you give people a little bit of a, a taste of what they would get if they yeah, get into yeah. PR school? Well, what I actually would love to share is the very first lesson we teach in PR school. And it's a mindset shift. It's as simple as that, but it really is the key to getting great PR. And it's really simple. You want to hear it? Yeah. Give, give, get. So give, give, get. You're like, what is that? That's just three words. I don't even understand. But I'm going to unpack it for you. And then I want you to write this down on a post-it note. Because if you do want to get the word out about your brand, this is the number one thing you need to do day in and day out. And so it's give good story, give like it's a friend, and get all sorts of amazing things. But the give good story is the very first most important part. And it's because editors, writers, reporters, producers, good story the num- is the number one thing they need. Everybody, they need good story day in and day out. Like when I was at Oprah, my job performance depended on coming up with good stories. And my colleagues at places like BuzzFeed, they have to pitch good story ideas up to 10 times a day. Just get into that mindset of an editor. They need good stories 10 times a day. And so the trick is, though, a good story isn't all just about you. A good story isn't just like, hey, here's Guesterly. Isn't it awesome? That's not a good story. A good story is like, hey, here's a trend of what people are doing or something I've learned in my business that other entrepreneurs can learn from. A good story might be, here's what's going to come up in the next year. You know, Maybe all of a sudden, teal is going to be a huge color at weddings. And I know that because I'm starting to see people ask for it nonstop. Maybe it is something that your customers are asking for. One of the best ways to get good stories is what are your customers asking for? And then what is the creative way that you are solving it? So for example, my friend Deb um, is a coach. She works with lots of business owners. And she mentioned one day, she's like, yeah, something I found over and over again is that maybe your bad habits aren't actually bad for you. And I'm like, whoa, 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 bad habits aren't bad for you? Like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, maybe times a bad habit is actually stopping you from doing an even worse habit. You know, maybe you are watching Netflix at night, but it's keeping you from smoking, for example. And I was like, wow, that's a story, right? Because something you're seeing, so you're the expert, and something other people can learn from, because then she had all these tips about how to actually, you know, work with your bad habits to get what you really want. And so we sent it to my friend at Oprah, and boom, full-page story in the January issue of Oprah. And so it's like, what's the story there? Notice the story there was not, hi, I'm Deb. I'm an amazing career coach. It was, your bad habits aren't actually that bad for you. Do you see the difference there, Jess? Totally different vibe of approaching it. And so it's finding what are your good stories. I'll give you one more example, which is for Guesterly a lot, we want to be like, what are we, what's in our sphere that we can talk about? And of course, we're all about helping guests have a great time and helping people give their guests a great time. And so one of the stories we pitched to New York Magazine was you know, the study. There's a new study that says event organizers say helping their guests feel special is actually their number one priority. This was in 2014. Big study that not did, it said, hey, huge, huge thing, helping your guests feel like this is important. We said it's the year of the guest, and we have five fresh new ideas to make your guest feel amazing. And the best part is most of them are even free. So we gave four amazing ideas that were like things you hadn't thought about, you know, pointing an ambassador for your guest who doesn't know anybody, for example. And then the last idea was guesterly. And 
we have gotten so many full page stories out of that idea. And notice what we're doing. We're giving good story. We're not saying, please write about my company. So give good story. Literally, if you walk away with nothing else from this whole entire video, walk away with that. Uh, the second is give like it's a friend. So I do have a little secret for you and it's going to feel shocking, but it's that editors are people too. Shocker. I know. <laughs> no, but it's very true. Editors are people too. I think it's very easy to forget that and think of them as like fancy automated robots writing away up in their tower, you know, in New York city or wherever they are. And we forget that they are just people just like you and me with, you know, inboxes that are packed full. So when I was at Oprah, I would get at least 300 pitches a day, 300. And I think probably most editors there get more than that now. But before you're like, oh my gosh, I have no chance of ever getting in anything. 90% of those emails, probably even more than 90% would be mass emails that were sent to me, a thousand of my colleagues and might not have anything to do with me. So delete, 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 delete. Contrast that to an email that's like, hi, Rachel, really love that story you wrote on mini desserts last week, you know, thought this idea on after dinner drinks might be really interesting to you. Have a great chef who's perfect for it. What do you think? All of a sudden we're like talking like friends, right? It's a totally different conversation instead of, hey, Rachel and everybody else in the world, here's this big press release, boom, right about me. Totally different. And give like a friend keeps going in the same way. Like treat this person like a friend. For example, when you send samples, send lots of samples. Don't make their life harder. Send lots of samples, send exactly what they need. But also you can make them an office hero. Let's say you have an ice cream company. You're sending ice cream to an editor for consideration. You could send one pint. Yes, there's nothing wrong with sending one pint. But if you're treating the editor like a friend, why not send 12 pints and ice cream scoops and bowls? And the next thing you know, you're having a party in the office and they're all talking about your company they're loving on your editor at the same time. I saw that work so many times so well in the offices of Oprah. Again, this person is your friend. Give abundantly. And because it's your friend, you don't have to worry about the immediate ROI so much. It's not, do they write about you in the next 10 minutes? It's, we're going to have a relationship. Things are going to go back and forth. We're going to talk. We're going to keep trying new ideas. That's how you get featured. I love and then it. finally... I know, give like a friend, right? If this is your person's your friend, you just treat them with that level of respect over and over again. And they'll treat you back with the same level of respect. Um, and then finally you get, right? So we've given good story, give like it's a friend, and then you get. And this part's actually the most important because you get so many things and the key is being able to appreciate and use them all. So yes, you get featured and maybe that's a six page story or a tweet or an Instagram picture, a product and a gift guide, a quote. It can be a whole range of things, but you also get the beginnings of that long-term relationship with the editor like we just talked about. And you don't have to be a one and done. Jahan, who's one of our PR school editor mentors, it's her biggest thing. She's like, I will feature you over and over again if you are gracious and thankful and keep coming back in a great way. So like at the end of the day, editors don't want to go find new people to have to quote. You're good and keep that relationship going. They'll just come back to you. And so really treat that relationship with the, like, the power it deserves. And then the third thing that you get is credibility. You now get to position your little teeny brand with this huge name over here. And don't forget to do that part. Don't forget to close the loop on that. 
and feature it everywhere. Because even if your story was just a one-line thing, it would now been featured and say, Oprah, run with that. Share all of your promotional things and stuff like that. So honestly, getting the PR is only half of it. So what you do with the PR afterwards, that's really going to drive your sales. And so that is give, give, get, and that's your mindset. That's what you want to keep thinking. It's a cycle. Give good story so that you're constantly coming up with give good story. You're giving like it's a friend and really abundantly too, right? Like this is not, I'll give you if you give me. This is just give. We're giving first here. But then when you do get, appreciate it and take it to the level that it deserves. Okay. I love it. You know, um, as you're talking there, there was a couple of things in there that I really wanted to highlight, you know, in case people missed it. Like yeah. one, I loved in your story about there was four really helpful things that happened to be free, easy pickup. And then you mm-hmm. guys are almost coming in the side door, like your ancillary to the story. It's totally. right. It's help first happens to be brought to you by kind of yep. feeling as you're describing. That's what it felt like to me at least. And this, 100%. Uh, this idea of like, leading with them and you happen to be the sideline, right? Yep. Um, another one was when you described that email, like um, in these different companies that, that we've owned, uh, we've had, you know, dozens and dozens of sales reps at certain times, um, pretty large forces. And one of the things that we teach over and over is quit sending an email that looks like an ad, send an yeah. email that looks like the email your buddy sends to you. Like if it's yeah. more than five sentences wrong, five sentences long, you really need to question, like, do you send emails like this to your buddies? Like, yeah. <laughs> are most of your buddies' emails like one to two sentences and a link? You yep. know, there's no photo, there's no like HTML template. I mean, I know there's a lot of companies yeah. out there with the templates, but totally, we immediately get this reaction of, oh, somebody's trying to sell me something versus yep. personal. You know, it's not a blast. It's one on one, short. Anyways, I, I love that you brought that up. I just wanted to. Highlight yeah, the you're exactly right. It. It's what works with sales too. Same thing. Editors choose stories from people they like and people buy from people they like. It's the exact same mentality. Love it. Um, well, we have a few things that we like to ask all the different guests. Um, we're going to get to those in just a second. But um, for, for a lot of people tuning in who haven't been a part of the kind of media organizations you've been a part of. Can you give us any kind of like peek behind the curtain? Like, did you ever have interaction with Oprah? How did that, how does that work at the magazine? Uh, yes. So I did. And Oprah magazine is partially owned by Harpo, which is Oprah's company and partially owned by Hearst. But Oprah was a big part. Uh, Gail King, her best friend was an even bigger part. And they serve roles kind, that are kind of described as editorial directors. So they might not be writing things, but it's their vibe, their mission, their things they care about that end up in the magazine. Um, Yeah. And also, I will say this. I think Oprah is an amazing woman, an amazing boss. She treats her employees very, very well. And I think that's nice to hear, too, in the end of the day, is somebody like that who you think you should have a lot of respect for, people who work for her say the exact same thing. That's so great. Go, Oprah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Do you have any examples of that? I think it's really easy for us to be easy to someone who can do something for us. And I think, you know, there's a lot of temptation to maybe um, not have that level of respect for staff members, for those of us that are mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, because let's face it, you're paying them and they'll show up again tomorrow anyways. Yeah. Uh, can, do you have any examples of what that looked like or, or any ways yeah. that it showed up for a you? A couple things I really liked. And the first is that Oprah would come in, you know, occasionally and 
have parties with us, but then be very normal during those parties. It wasn't like, I'm Oprah up on a stage, you're down here. And the biggest thing is she come in and introduce a new staff members. And when let's say she's talking about you, Jess, I'm not paying attention to Oprah. I'm paying attention to you. And so she's very good at making people feel very important, very part of the team. But she also did things that I really loved and kind of showed where her roots came from. So, for example, for years, she did a Christmas bonus. And it was based on what her first boss did when she was 21 years old working on a TV station. Her first boss, and I'm forgetting his name, but she always called it this, so I should remember. But her first boss gave everybody an extra week's pay at Christmas. And Oprah said, you know what? That mattered so much to me back then when I was 21 years old and had no money that I'm going to do it for my employees. And she did for years and years and years and years, including, you know, unpaid interns got fun stuff, too. And so it was that kind of vibe of no matter how high up or how, you know, wherever you are on the totem pole, everybody who works here is going to get this special thing. But what I loved is that it wasn't just a bonus for being there. It was relating back in memory of this guy who had been her first boss. And every year she told the story of him and how great he was to his employees. And so it actually wasn't about Oprah being great. It was about her putting that respect to her first boss. And it was like a memoriam to him every year at Christmas for hundreds and hundreds of employees. So like that type of thing. I love that one. Well, that's great. And it, it actually leads into one of these questions we like to ask everybody. Is there anybody from earlier in your life, or earlier in your career that really stands out as an example of how to treat others? Somebody that made the oh. difference for you that comes to mind? Yes. Very first person that comes to mind is a woman named Chandra Turner, who today is the executive editor at Parents Magazine. And I talk about her a lot. But as I mentioned in the very beginning, I was supposed to go to law school. I had no journalism experience. Most of these other interns being hired at this point were, you know, they've been doing this since freshman year. They've been interning nonstop since they were freshmen in college. They'd written for their news college newspapers. Usually they were editors of their college newspapers. And I had none of that because I just kind of decided this is actually what I want to do. So I wrote Chandra a letter and she had this amazing internship. She's kind of like the godmother of magazine editors in New York City. And I said, hey, I'm supposed to go to law school. This is what I actually want to do. Here's why I think you should hire me. She hired me. It was probably one of the best things that has ever, ever happened to me. But really what happened after she hired me and the thing is that she's done this with hundreds of other people as well, which is amazing how she finds the time. She mentored me point blank. She would take me in. She didn't just edit my story. She'd be like, okay, we're going to change this and this and this. And I remember doing one story actually about a woman named Maggie Doyne who runs a very, very amazing school in Nepal now. And we were the first ones to write about her 10 years ago, eight years ago, long time ago. And Chandra sat down with me for hours rewriting that story. In the end, the story was beautiful, but it had nothing to do with me. It was all chant. But you know what? It would have been way faster. She could have rewritten herself in five minutes and been done and out the door. And so I really want to respect that. But there's a lot of talk today about people who are mentors versus people who are sponsors. And the whole idea, like mentors help you, sponsors open doors. And I think what Chandra has done, not just for me, but for so many people who come to New York for, say, you know, the Midwest. Chandra's originally from the Midwest as well. I grew up in the Midwest. And she does both. She mentors you and then she opens the doors. If you're up for a job, she calls. She talks to that person. She pulls on her network and says, hey, I think you should fi- you know, find this person. When a magazine closes, Chandra's there first at line 
saying, hey, who can we help get jobs? Who has placements over here? What senior editors can hire new people over here? Even when it's not her magazine, I've seen her do it so many times. And so if you are somebody who wants to be a magazine editor or are a magazine editor from 22 to 26, Chandra has basically made your world for you in New York. And so I will just give her a huge shout out. And because I think we can all think about doing that ourselves in our own industries, in our own places, is we all remember what it feels like to be the new person, new city, new industry. And often we lose that feeling as we kind of grow up, get more successful, move on. And what's so amazing about Chandra, she never lost that feeling of what does it feel like to be 21 in New York, first starting out. And now, you know, she's helped literally, as I said, hundreds and hundreds of people navigate those first few years. And so we can all do that in our own ways too, is not forget what that feels like so that we can help people in the beginning. I love it. Um, makes you think that about was a it. love letter to Chandra. It was yeah. totally off the cuff, but totally a love letter. <laughs> That's great though. Um, you know, I have another question for you, especially for people who are inventing somewhat something, maybe they're a creator, maybe they're a innovating inside their company, maybe they're an entrepreneur. Um, it seems like so often we're on this teeter totter and there's, there's times that we need more confidence. There's times that we probably need more humility. And, um, you know, I, uh, I remember when we first met, it was, it was, you were a really fun person to meet because you didn't, I didn't know if you knew anybody in the room. It didn't seem like they were all your buddies, but you weren't like sitting in the corner waiting for people to introduce themselves to you, but you weren't showing up like some prima donna either. Like you were just, you were there and you were like straightforward with everyone and you wanted to meet people and you were like, you were genuinely warm. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts of times when you realize you need more confidence, what do you do? And times when you realize you need more humility, what do you do? Oh, good one. Um, well, going back to being in the room, I think it is this mindset. And you can not tell now, I love mindsets. This mindset that everybody has a story. And again, it's almost like a reporter, right? My job is to go out and hear great stories. And so that lets you approach people because again, you're not asking, you're just, hey, tell me your story. I want to hear that. And also it doesn't make it about you. And so you don't have to like be on stage, be in performance mode. You're just sharing stories with people. Um, but as far as more confidence, I will admit I had a really interesting confidence shift around the time that my book came out. And I was working with an amazing woman named Leslie. And it was around that thing where who are we going to get involved in this book? And I felt like, oh, you know, I'll ask people, but only if it's convenient for them. And I feel like we always come back to that type of thing. Like, oh, if it's convenient for them, then, they, you know, like if this works for you or can you do this thing? And she would sat me down. She's like, Rachel, you're an Oprah editor. You have so many friends, so many high places. You're going to have an amazing influential group here. You bring great energy. You're offering them this chance to be involved with a book that's going to be huge. You are not asking for anything. You are offering. And kind of what we talked about. But it was almost that moment. Somebody saying, look at what you have. You're not asking. You're giving them an opportunity. And sometimes we need somebody to say that to us, but even to say it to yourself right now, it's like, look at what your strengths are, right? Like, Jess, you've done so many amazing things. And just to know that in your head as you go in and not be like, oh, well, they did that and they did that. Know what you've done. And I think a really good way to look at that is we often hear like fake it until you make it. I like looking at it another way, which is make it, then fake it. Because do the work have the legitimacy. You know, I was the editor. I was the writer of the book. I'd done the work. I wasn't just like, hey, I want to be famous. I did the stuff. But then you have to almost fake it and own it in a way until you do make it in a different way. Does that make sense? You have to do the work, but then 
fake it like it's the biggest thing in the world and own it like it's the biggest thing ever. Um, as far as humility goes, so I will say that actually really shifted for me. It's been a number of years now, and that's been a big mindset shift that I really try to live every day. And also the more you do it and the more you see the results of that. Um, for example, when I was doing my book event, we're having this big party in New York City. And we asked all the entrepreneurs, we said, hey, if you're around the tri-state area, or if you want to come in, we'd love to feature you at this big party and have you speak. And one of the entrepreneurs in my book, who's a pretty darn big deal, said, you know, wrote back immediately, just book tickets, I'll be there. And I was like, oh, in my head, I was like, you don't have to fly in from San Francisco. Like, no, no, no I didn't mean that. I meant like, if you're in town. And I sat there with that email for hours being like, do I send it? Do I not send it? Do I send it? And eventually I didn't send it. He said he wanted to come. I let him come. And after the event, he wrote me a note and he said, thank you so much for inviting me. That was the most high impact things I have ever done. You know, we made so many good relationships. We placed, we got big orders. We got an account. We got in fast company from it. And he was just like, said, thank you so much for taking the time and thinking of inviting me. And I keep that note because I was about to tell him, don't come, don't come for little old me. I didn't mean that. And yet, look what he got out of it, right? So let people make their own decisions. You don't have to make the decisions for them. You give them the opportunity, they can make the decision. As far as humility, oh goodness. Um, I think it's about keeping with people who are smarter and doing cool things all the time. Like go places, be with people who are just constantly up-leveling you. Because it only takes a couple times of being up-leveled where you're like, okay, I can keep getting better and better and better and better. And I can figure this out better and better and better and better. And so it's really nice to be the most successful or the smartest person in the room. But it's kind of like a knife that never gets sharpened. And so put yourself in those challenging situations, even with speaking and stuff, right? It's like push yourself out there. Even comes back to sending out the ships, right? Nothing will make you more humble than sending things out day after day and never getting responses. So but then you do get a response. So yeah, it's more just pushing yourself out there because if you stay in your really safe little space, then sure, it's easy to be like, oh, I'm amazing, woohoo. But push yourself out there and don't worry, you'll, you'll stay humble automatically because it'll all suck. <laughs> no, but yeah, the more you put out there and the more good stuff doesn't come in, the more that you'll stay humble. That's great. Um, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, if there's a theme to both of those, um, I was kind of hearing a bit about like a real honesty, like an honesty about what you have done and an honesty about what you haven't done and mm -hmm. kind of being okay with both. Is that, am I, I know I'm putting yeah. words in your mouth, but is there any? Yeah, no, I really like that. It's a good way of saying it. Own it, both sides of it. But that being said, you don't have to put the side of it that you don't feel comfortable with out there. So don't be like, I'm great at this, but I'm bad at this. Don't do that part of it. You can just have that internally. Actually, it's perfect. You know, you talked about speaking opportunities and the different times that, you know, we've coached, coached people on getting ready for their speech is like, don't get up there and tell them about what preparation you didn't do. Like yeah. everybody is here hoping you're not wasting their time. Don't yep. give them any reason to think you are because they're going to take their cue from you, how you feel about yeah. yourself. They're going to take that cue from that. Like, you know, at college when you want when I wanted to date that cute girl, right? Showing up with the list of the things that would probably annoy her about me is probably not going to get the date, right? Like exactly she, that. She's exactly. going to find those out. Those are going to yeah. show up. Don't get, don't get yeah. me wrong, but this may not be the first foot forward, right? Yeah, you don't have to show them the bad stuff. 
Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, in the last couple of minutes here, um, let's, the next one we'd, we'd like to ask people about is is giving back in the world and ways that they like to give back. And then mm-hmm. any advice they have for the charity we started at Child Rescue and how we can get the word out. So let's start yes. with, um, which obviously you've covered a lot of, but uh, let's start with ways that you like to give back to the world or ways that you plan to in the future. So I am very, very lucky that my best friend uh, started an amazing nonprofit about six years ago called She's the First. And it's an, um, absolutely incredible to watch it have grown into what it's grown into because she started and we were roommates and I would see her come home after work and work on it, get up, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning and work on it. And now it's eventually grown into a full-time position for her and many other people. But what She's the First does is sends girls to school in developing nations because, Mm. and nothing against girls in the U.S., nothing against boys in developing nations, but statistically across the world, girls in developing nations are very, very unlikely to receive the chance to get an education. And so they work with these partner schools and it's so vetted and so transparent. And the part I love the most about this, which is why we support them as a company, actually we support them with PR school, we support them with Guesterly and as my own personal life, my husband and I support them, is that every penny you give goes straight to girls' education and sponsoring a particular girl. All of their overhead is paid through through a couple of corporate grants. And so it's this really grassroots thing. College chapters, for example, are huge, and they'll do these bake sales. And every cent they raise, again, goes straight to all the direct costs associated with sending this girl to school. And I just love that huge transparency. And so what pays for their salaries, for example, are these big corporate grants that, again, it's amazing. So when we give them money, we know, oh, it's sponsoring this girl 100%. And I just love that level of here's the girl I'm actually working with. Here's my letters from her. Here's her name. Here's what we're doing. And it keeps you coming back again and again because it's personal. And I think that's the nicest thing for all of us is to get involved with something that feels very personal where you know the impact you're making. And just from what I've seen, you're doing the exact same thing. You're making this very, very personal. And you're bringing people's stories in the real way that people are impacting them. And so as far as advice, I would just say keep sharing those stories. And also I've been meaning to connect you to Tammy. She's the first, so we'll make that happen too. But I think it's sharing the stories of what you're doing. Because in the, the day, it's stories and people. Um, and I know that you're very transparent as well. But I think especially like with millennials right now, transparency is huge. We're all kind of sick of the charities that send us mailings over and over and over again. And we're like, wait, my $50 donation just went to sending out mailings. Like that kind of feels silly. Um, and so again, we want things that feel like my money is actually helping. Love it. Love it. Um, well, we totally should. Let's see if we can't get her to be on the show and, and highlight the good work oh, they're doing. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Totally. Great um, idea. I'll make that happen. Well, uh, kind of in closing here, um, we're, we're kind of book junkies. Um, so besides obviously cooking up a business, which we're going to have the links to here, what are, what are some of the, uh, top choice picks you've got for innovators or entrepreneurs books they should be reading, Ooh, listening okay. to? I love the one thing, uh, which really just drives you back to what is your core mission today over and over and over again. Um, what else did I just read? Um, what about like when you talk thing. about product, product, uh, product market fit or, or, you know, some of the, like the lean startup type principles, yeah. like what, what's your weapon of choice when you're thinking about that, those type of concepts, anything come to mind right off the bat or not so much? Not so much. That's I okay. mean, we read the lean startup 
you make so many mistakes over and over and over again, and you hear so many things. I don't even know where I've amalgamated some of that things before. But the one thing which has this idea of like, what's the one thing in which doing will make everything else either easier or unnecessary? I love that way of looking at it because a lot of times you can feel like I have 10 billion things to do and what's even like, you know what your priority is, but to even find your priority, it's like, you know, if we sold a billion dollars worth, all those other issues would probably become like not even an issue. And so what do you focus on that makes all the other problems kind of fade away? And I love that way of looking at it. It's like pick your highest thing and then you don't have to worry about all those little problems that you'd love to spend time on. Yeah. yeah, the one thing. If I think of another one, I'll tell you for the links. I don't sure, have one sure. top ahead. <laughs> no, but uh, big, big fan of the book. Also, you know, I think for me, um, I'm very much of an everything guy. Let's do it all, mm-hmm. and then I end up with sixty or eighty things on my to dos list, and I don't do anything, or I just don't yep. do anything that matters. Right? Yep. I feel like it's like the battlefield medic. Like wh- I have this much time. To, I can, I can spend the coin of time once. Which which candy machine does it go in? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. That's great. Well, um, Rachel, you've obviously done so much diverse, diverse, uh, different areas and stuff. Any parting guidance for people who are trying to change something, people are trying to make the world better. You know, it's going to be Jess. It's going to be two things. It's going to be get started this weekend and then give, give, get whatever that is, whether it's PR or reaching out to people, just give first. I love it. Thanks so much for being on the show. This is fun. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.